Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, we are recording on a Sunday. This will be out on Tuesday. It is Valentine's Day. Have you guys done anything for Valentine's? <laughs> uh, took my daughter for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> Have you done any Valentine's? Was that a Valentine's themed walk? Yeah. Or did you tell her about Cupid and the, <laughs> and the cherubs? I think I told her don't slip on the ice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, so romantic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Valentine's Day, I gotta say, of all the, of all, I don't think this is an original thought, but it is the dumbest holiday, right? <laughs> like it's by far, and it's also the one that I think nobody likes. Like nobody actually likes Valentine's Day, and uh, it is the, it feels the most compulsory, where you have to, like you know, like where you feel like you have to. Everything else is fine. Thanksgiving is fine. I actually like Thanksgiving. I like Thanksgiving. Halloween yeah. is totally fine, you know, even though I don't really like Halloween. But now I have a kid, Halloween obviously is much better. But like Valentine's, I don't know. We don't have to go on about this. I feel like I'm doing Jerry Seinfeld <laughs> yeah. bit right now. All right. Well, um, so we have a lot to update you on. Um, the first is thank you to everyone who has contributed to our, our Patreon. Uh, if you want to do that right now, it is uh, patreon.com slash ttsgpod. Uh, thank you for those... A lot of you who have signed up for the Patreon have come onto our Discord chat, which uh, is quite lively. Um, and, you know, people are talking, and there's instructions on the Patreon on how you can join that, um, which is very simple. I think you just have to click once. And we have had two bonus episodes that you can access. One is with Anakwa Dwamena, which was a conversation with Tammy about sort of the black diaspora. You know, black working class diaspora here in the United States as well. Some stuff about CLR James, I think is very enlightening and cool. And we had our first one with Jiang Fan, who talked a lot about her sort of, I don't know, her upbringing in a way that I think was, was really jived with a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show. We thought that we were just going to talk about boba, <laughs> yeah. you know, and boba <laughs> mama liberalism, um, which I didn't realize had become such a big thing. You know, like I don't, I read this cr criticism of something I had written and it was just about like, it was almost like a defense of Boba, you know, and I was like, I don't want Something you'd written so on Boba? At this point. No, just something, oh. I, the, the piece <laughs> I had written about Steve, oh, Stephen Young and it was like, kind of like, well, you know, like, what do we do when, what do we do with shorthand for like race, you know, and like Boba is obviously one and Amy Tan is another. <laughs> and, um. And I was like, I didn't realize that people took Boba so seriously. Everything's refracted sort of through way. Amy Tan or Boba. There's <laughs> yeah. no other choice. There's, well, that, yeah. I mean, maybe that's true. You know, maybe it's Jeremy <laughs> Lin, Boba, and and Amy Tan. Those are the those are the three poles of uh, you know access into Asian America, and it refracts both ways. Um, so yeah, if you want to sign up, uh, we would really appreciate it, and we really appreciate what you've done so far for it. Like, we're really we thought it was going to be much less um, response, and it's been great so far. I don't know. I'm very happy with it. Are you guys? Yeah. It's very, uh, yeah, what's totally. the word? Humbling? Flattering? Yeah. Humbling and flattering. It's a nice community on the Discord, too. Like, yeah. just really smart, cool people. So, it's I know. Half awesome. of the conversations are over my head. <laughs> and, and he was having this conversation. And he's running with, a Marxist like, school with, in there. Yeah, with two young people talking about, like, so. And I, like, read through the whole thing. It's like, I don't understand anything that they're talking about. It was like, it's, uh, I was honestly shocked. These, uh, I don't want to name anyone names, but, like, this really obscure, like, school of Marxist stuff that I came across in grad school that I think most academics 
themselves would think is over their head. These these undergrads are like getting into it because of these Twitter feeds out there, and I'm and I'm like, oh my god, like what Twitter. is going on? Wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and yeah, is I don't it, know. It was it was really interesting to hear um, their perspectives. So th- sometimes they right. teach us more than we teach them. That's right. Um, <laughs> you sound so old. Um, we, yeah, exactly. The kids and their Twitter feed Marxism, yeah. you know, bringing out uh, obscure things. Um, all right. Well, uh, we have a couple things we wanted to talk about this week. The first is pretty, I don't know. I, I think it is one of the questions about the pandemic that is not talked about much at all. Right. And, and I think that I've, you know, I think that the New York Times just, the reason we're talking about it is the New York Times just came out with a series called Primal Scream, and it was a series of articles that was packaged together about the experiences of working mothers during the pandemic. And um, I found it to be really, I don't know, I thought it was great work. You know, like I thought that, that there was a lot of thought put into it, a lot of reporting put into it. I thought that the, the main story, which is about three mothers, one of them in Spokane, one of them in Temecula, and one of them, I don't remember the third place. I think it was in the Maryland West somewhere or something like yeah. Maryland. Yeah. Okay, that that it was, you know, it was it was affecting and it was it was well written and um, yeah. So I think we were going to talk about that just because I think that like we're almost at the point of the pandemic where I think that people we're not out of the pandemic by any means. There's no real. I, I don't think that we're really even at like a light at the end of the tunnel moment, but I think we're at a moment where we have to kind of assess what the actual costs have been for the past year. And yeah. people talk about the death count, which is atrocious, right? People talk about the economy. People talk about schools. They talk about mental health. But the one thing I don't really hear t- talked about much is just sort of this idea of like what has happened to people's families, right? So I don't know, Tammy, Andy, what did, what, what did you think about this series? I was really grateful they did it too, and I agree with you that it was affecting. The, the main story on the three mothers put me into a state of rage that I haven't really recovered from. I thought it was... Oh. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was very frustrated with the piece because, um, I mean, it, it, on the one hand, it does articulate all of the horrible inequities you know gender wise that exist in like hetero families which all three of these are hetero families there are men in two of them and I was just like I don't fucking understand why the men do nothing and that there isn't more of a questioning in the piece about like how did we get this way why are we still this way what are we going to do about this it's just you know and I don't you know the I don't think that was necessarily the point of the piece to like be prescriptive or to you know advance social you know movement but i just found it like a restatement of something that we know but without any kind of critical gloss on it and so i had a lot of wine afterwards <laughs> <laughs> and i'm just angry i'm just angry about it i've yeah. this one thing for the past year of doing this podcast is i've started to learn about tammy's coping mechanisms <laughs> yeah. you know i only have for wine. me i just like yeah i, I just like uh put on two nicotine patches and play online poker. <laughs> Tammy, Tammy, seems to, Tammy seems to drink more than I do. <laughs> um, so some statistics that were in the piece, right, which is that almost one million mothers have left the workplace with black mothers, Hispanic mothers, and single mothers among the hardest hit. 
Almost one in four children experienced food insecurity in 2020, which is intimately related to the loss of maternal income. And more than three quarters of parents with children aged eight to 12 say the uncertainty around the current school year is is causing them stress. Eight, I I I know, only three three quarters. (laughs) Who are the other quarters? (laughs) Do they have five nannies? I don't understand. that's, That's super rich for sure, yeah. You think the quarter? Okay, I mean, but I feel even like even they the would super rich are stressed just, exactly. out about it. Exactly, it's just it. like it's causing like, stress. Yeah. It's the weirdest survey it's like data. You're, are you yeah, stressed? It's like, yeah. I, yeah, it's like such a low quarters? bar. <laughs> the super rich are probably stressed out too, right? Yeah. Like they're just like I don't know, like you know, like Dalton's closed, yeah. you know, or maybe it's open, <laughs> but like you know, I don't want like it's stressful to see your kid in a mask at school yeah. too, even if the kid is like, you know, gonna inherit. $2 billion. Um, <laughs> okay, so the article continues, despite these alarm bells clanging, signaling a financial and emotional disaster among America's mothers who are doing most of the increased amount of childcare and domestic work during this pandemic, the culture and policy response enacted at this point has been nearly non-existent, right? And it goes on, that, that is sort of like the big idea, and then the specific story is about, th- like we said, three moms and... Uh, you know, I don't. We don't need, need to go too detailed. You should all read it, but it is what you would expect, right? Like, so there is one single mother, or there's one mother who has an autistic child, right? And this is, um, and she is really struggling trying to do the special care, doing the special classes with the kid. There's a scene where she has like two zooms going on at the yeah. same time that made me like it just made me so sad. Yeah, it's like, it's awful. This, on the one hand, she has her daughter there who is non-speaking, so you know, somewhat severe case of autism dealing with like the teacher trying to make sure that the type of instruction that really needs to be in person is working for and then on the other one she's on a fucking zoom call with her work you know and it's just like how do you how do you even deal with it and uh you know it certainly made me reflect on my own participation in raising our child during this pandemic and i will not say that i think i have been better than the father in that <laughs> but certainly i think you know like i think I haven't been great either, you know, and I don't know, Tammy, like, I I think that your central question, why are we still like this is really the center of it. And, um, and why has this not gotten more attention up to this point is the other part of it. Uh, Just anecdotally, I'm sure you guys are in the same boat was like, I know tons of people who left the workplace, you know, Mm. like tons of mothers who stopped working this year, um, because they couldn't deal with having two kids in school at home and you know their husband worked and so they just left their jobs oh, wow. right? like it's a thing that happens um do you do you do you not know anyone i don't know anyone no, no. i'm in a bubble of academics so we more or less suffer together <laughs> and, and and are like kind of part-time anyway so it's like just yeah. extra stress but but not necessarily changing jobs you know flexi hours and yeah you know i mean jay you said like why are we still like this but i think one thing you know tammy and i were talking about was sort of like this isn't just the sort of leftover from traditional gender roles that I think part of the unspoken history that Tammy was saying we should talk about more is like um, if you imagine like the 1960s in theory a story like this might not might sound different because back then it was assumed that the woman would stay home anyway and not be working at all so that's kind of the implicit history that it's leaving out that I think I guess Tammy you're sort of saying um, frustrated you, right? And I, I don't. I wonder if when I was reading, I, I was having a lot of the same thoughts, like, "Oh, th- what is the actual history behind all this?" I don't know. I thought that might just be a journalistic convention to kind of, you know, just be as 
realistic as possible and talk about the details rather than talk about the historical backdrop. Um, but like, I mean, you know, one thing we were talking about before was there's um, there's the sort of academic or very, but also kind of accessible literature out, on, out there about what does this thing called neoliberalism mean? How, how has it affected like the role of women um, in particular and their relationship, like going, going to work, but also the increased burden at home, um, which I think dovetails with like the conversations we had with Sarah about Lux magazine and, and a lot of those arguments. Um, but just to like throw a couple out there on the table, there's an argument that Nancy Fraser has argued that um, it's, it's, a, it's a controversial argument, but she says something like this kind of push to have women enter the workforce in the 60s and 70s was very much um, uh, legitimized as sort of this recognition politics, like women can be now visible and gain independence by joining the workforce. But by focusing so much on recognition rather than, say, economic redistribution or the class element, it unintentionally may have, you know, aided in this shift towards capital having all the power over labor because the labor force is now, you know, twice as big uh, in theory. And the other argument um, that that has come out in, in American politics, right? The, on the one hand, there's a sort of like women will get recognized by entering the workforce. That's something you hear a lot from probably like le- left centrist Democratic candidates, Um on the other hand, is the sort of neoconservative argument that in the 60s into now, I think we're familiar with the argument that conservatives criticized welfare as basically incentivizing single moms to take advantage of the welfare state. So families have to take more responsibility for you know labor in the household. And this has been a justification to obviously end welfare with Clinton in the 90s, justification for like school choice and all these sort of terrible privatized education programs. Um, but the flip side of that, and the author kind of makes this argument is Melinda Cooper, is that implicit in this drive, to, or the reason that neoconservatives really like the idea of the family unit is because the family unit comes with it, this alongside the sort of uh, paid formal labor, the family unit comes with it, you know, woman's unpaid informal labor that keeps everything going. So you have like these two stories of the last 30, 40 years of women both entering the workforce, but also staying tied and kind of made invisible um, as the government devolves its welfare responsibilities onto sort of individual. Fa- so there's just like crazy balancing act that's been happening over the last 40, 50 years of women kind of shouldering the breadwinner responsibilities with men increasingly, but also still remaining the primary unpaid source of labor within the household. Um, I don't know. Does that sound right to you, Tammy? Do you? Yeah. And I think the like two things I might just add to that have been articulated in different disciplines are like Arlie Hochschild has famous, the sociologist has famously called this like the second shift, right? That women are doing the outside sort of traditional like wage work and then also doing it at home, like continuously. And I think also this idea that over that same period, like the welfare state has been degraded, but also just work generally has been degraded. So everybody's work is shitty and underpaid. (laughs) And so, you know, I think as, Frazier like describes these coincident processes of like traditional second wave feminism, the sort of more recognition part of that and neoliberalism like advancing together. There's also just this fact that there's, there's no unions, there's, you know, terrible wages, there's this growing like split in terms of like what a shareholder, you know, based economy can be. Um, 
So yeah, it's just a horrible <laughs> cyclone of things. And I, I think there could have been a graph about that. I think there also could have been a graph about yep. the fact that there have been battles and like junctures at which this could have changed, at which we could have questioned more of this. And like, you know, we're not. I mean, I think like, I mean, Andy is certainly, you know, touch, by touching on the destruction of welfare by Clinton. So the welfare rights movement, which really started in the in the 70s, but has moved forward, um, you know, and I think like the good left feminists, we are the inheritors of that, that movement. Like that was an articulation of feminism that was like, we need a robust welfare state, but we don't just need a robust welfare state. We also need to have like jobs that are good and decent. And we need to also have the social recognition of like women, you know, just having equality and having opportunity. Um, like to me, the dis- that 96 moment or 1992 moment, like that was a huge turning point in terms of how we see women's work and how we see the family. Yeah. That could have been different. You know, I think... Like right now we're having a little bit of a conversation about childcare subsidies and earned income tax credit, which I think we've talked a little bit about on this show. And, you know, we might say that right now we, we, this pandemic could put us into a moment where we have a reevaluation. I think like in this package, we've missed a little bit of an opportunity about that. You know, I think yeah. like there is one article of this package that just says, here are some like policies that could help. We should think about, you know, childcare subsidies about, like, the- and just to be clear, it's like the Biden exactly. $1.9 trillion aid package. Yeah, what's in the package? Right? Yeah. I think it's, what's it called? It's called like... Uh, oh, Cash the Family. The Re-Saving America or something like that. <laughs> something kind of like that, you know? <laughs> Which is basically what it is, you right. know? <laughs> like, right. like it, that, that is what it is. Yeah. Uh, even if it's not called that, that's what we should call it. Um, the, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, like Warren talked about universal child care. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was putting that on the table. And Warren, I think, is making the same argument as Fraser, kind of right. That um, that and which is this, they're also kind of open, vulnerable to the same criticism that, for instance, like Tucker Carlson has used Warren's research to say, like, yeah. see, like the single income family was better back then because. Right. But like, and that and the criticism that is that Fraser, this criticism of like, you know, feminism leading to the devolution of labor. Um, is is nostalgic and and so on, which you know it's it's a debate. I I think the other thing is I think these articles are kind of the flip side to the school reopening debate that we've been talking about. Mm. And did you get the sense from these articles that these were sort of an implicit argument for why you have to reopen schools <laughs> to kind of lift the burden? Oh man, I mean maybe partly right, like uh, that schools are the thing, teachers are the people. And educators are people who share the burden now, yeah. right? And so um, remember when Kamala came out and put out her health care plan and everybody flipped out because basically what she was doing is she was giving subsidies to people to work from to have after-school child care from like three yeah, to seven yeah. or something like that. And, you know, there's two ways to think about it. The first was like Kamala is a neoliberal who just wants to uh, support this exploitative system that we have to make sure that people can't spend time with their families but aren't going to go broke. Like, that's her big compromise. That's her vision of it. It's not a vision of how can we make it so people spend more time with their families? How can we make it so that schooling is appropriate? How can we make it so that, like, it is not just daycare while the parents go out and earn money, you know? 
And the other way to look at it was just like, well, realistically, you know, this would be <laughs> yeah. helpful. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, <laughs> um, like, I'm not sure if Kamala Harris is going to come down and be like, we have to destroy capitalism. Right. And, uh, you know, like, people are going to, like, go to agrarian-based economies. You know, it's going to be a lot like Japan. <laughs> you know, like, we're going to, me and my child are going to, you know, have a lot of time in the rice in the rice <laughs> paddies <laughs> together. <laughs> like, um, if Kamala had said that i think i probably would have voted for her but like there is you know that's like it's it's it is we're at this place where every single thing can be pulled apart in this sort of way right where um and the reason and yet like every single thing would be helpful and that sort of seems to me to be like a desperate situation right where we just kind of have to accept any help that we can get in terms of childcare across this country because people are in such dire straits with it and like nobody gives a shit, which is honestly a little baffling to me because lots of people yeah. have kids, you know, like we're like, even if you're like the father and the most patriarchal dude ever, like, you know what your, you know what your, what your childcare costs are per month, yep. right? Totally. It's a lot, right? Yep. And so, um, I don't know. I, I find that like the lack of attention to this be to be frustrating because I do think that it is a type of thing, as we've seen with a lot of other things since Trump left office, that would be wildly popular. Yeah. You know? Like bipartisan both both sides would uh would support this in the same way that it seems like both sides in a lot of states are supporting raises in minimum wage, you know, mm-hmm. aid, larger aid packages. Like it's not like Republicans don't have bills too. Yeah. Right. So um, I don't know. I, I, I find the whole thing to be totally confounding just because, uh, you know, I also have a kid and I have a lot of child care bills and like anything would be helpful. Yeah. Like and, you know, I have a relatively comfortable existence. I'm not like the mothers in this story, but still, you know, like anything would be helpful. Yeah. Right. And and it seems like nobody is like thinking, yeah. well, how can we help this one thing? It is the biggest expense in almost every family is is child care. So like. Uh, I don't know. I'm just baffled by why it's not a larger priority. Yeah. yeah. I mean, part of it is this ideology that it's, you know, you're supposed to do it out of love and you calling it labor totally. is somehow like, you know, like this third rail. You're not supposed to think of it as labor. It's supposed to be care. Um, and uh, but I do think you're right. Like it might be a thing where because like the raising minimum, minimum wage thing we forget was only a recent phenomenon. Like five years yeah. ago, it was considered controversial. So maybe in a few years, this will hopefully right follow the same trajectory of becoming I mean, it probably does already have majority support, but politicians don't acknowledge it. So it might be a thing where somehow politicians have to be forced to acknowledge this. Um, So I don't know. And I think, I mean, and still that doesn't answer this question of like, why is it still expected that mothers should do all of it? Like like that cultural piece too, like, you know, I think like a kind of a labor sociology feminism would say like you Mm. need to change the policy in order for that to change because we don't we haven't like made it so that these jobs outside of the home for instance in caregiving are are you know they're so majority female that that work is continuously undervalued so it's like a little bit of this kind of iterative process of like which thing do you need to change for it to now be acceptable for men to do their equal share in a household and it's just really hard i mean i I remember this one line. I don't even know where it is in Nancy Fraser, where she talks about like, what if instead of we, instead of having this kind of like male, like quote unquote soldiering economy, you know, this like military defense economy, we like actually encourage like people of all genders to be in care work, which is the fastest growing, you know, part of our economy right now. We need like elder care jobs. We need child care jobs. And then we like 
scaled that up and actually like paid people to do yeah. it like what what like what what kind of world would we have you know and i think like it'd be great if we could kind of think in those transformative terms and it seems yeah. like a pandemic that kills half a million people would be the opportunity to do that and yet i think what scares me so much is what jay just said which is that people are so desperate we're almost settling for less than we did before the pandemic right like, that the is school so reopening freaky, thing you know mm-hmm. The school reopening thing, Andy, in terms of your question, I do think that they are related in the sense that that is also a moment of great desperation, right? Yeah. The people who are arguing that teachers should go back to school, it's not that they don't understand, that they hate teachers. You know what? Some, some of them hate <laughs> teachers. <laughs> some of them seem um, to particularly hate like, teachers' yeah. unions. Okay. Now, outside of those people, I think a lot of the people who are more reasonable and less uh, less zealot, zealotrous or whatever, um, <laughs> who are not zealots about this, right, that they would argue that... Um, they totally sympathize with teachers. They want teachers to get hazard pay a raise, but like, um, but this country is going to break if they don't reopen schools next year. Mm-hmm. And I think there's probably a decent argument that the country will break if they don't reopen schools next year. So it's, mm-hmm. a de- it's another desperate situation, right, where people are like, I cannot, you know, I think people are very callous about this and they're like, oh, it's just because you don't want to be around your kids. It's like, no, it's not that, yeah. you know? It's, it's literally that the kid is being damaged by sitting in a stressful situation at home all day with no interaction with anybody yeah. else with like their parents running around doing god knows what to try and keep bread on the table and uh and then a lot of them you know this these are like we're just talking about here like middle class upper middle class zoom parents right who like are just working from home mm-hmm. also people like have to go people who actually have to go to work what the fuck are they what what have they been doing you know and so like yes it is a it is a thing and this is this is one thing i think the times did point out that you know it hits working class people the most right and generally and you know the, the one of the one of the people in the story was latina the other person was uh was um was black another person was white i think those mm-hmm. were three right yeah. and yeah. that um and they all struggled, right? Like that's sort of what we figured out. But you know, you just look sort of demographically who is the essential workers who are, who are, like which parents are shouldering the larger load. It's like you know, I don't know. It's not like white middle class families as much, and so there is a disparate effect there. But even outside of that, right? Like everyone is struggling. You know, like the yeah. the larger point I think is that everyone is struggling with this, and uh, I don't know. It's I think that there is like again two pathways the first is where you just say um this is my ideal world right and we should be giving cash payments out to everybody so nobody really should be working a lot of people who are working right now i think are doing things that are totally pointless right just going through the motions to make sure that the lights stay on um there a lot of the work does not need to have to be done that these that sort of these middle class upper middle class families are struggling with um, and I think they know that. I think their bosses know that. I think everyone knows that, right? And like, you just have to do it because that's how things are done at this point. And so there is a way to look at it and just be like, none of this should happen this way. But then there's also the point where like, well, you know, short of a revolution, this is how things are going to be. And I think that's what everyone's kind of stuck between and trying to figure out ways to figure this out. And I think, you know, the sad part of it is that some of the most the people who want to be pragmatic about it are actually just being like, you know, are being zealots about it. Like we said before, you know, attacking teachers unions and saying, 
you know, like teachers have are essential workers. If grocery store workers are going back to work, why don't you go back to work? All this sort of bullshit, right? And the other side of it is kind of like if you, you know, uh, like everyone who's complaining about this, everyone who wants schools to open is a murderer, right? Yeah. And like, and uh, and like all they want to do is not have to see their kids again. And it's like, look, like. <laughs> We're That's only five percent right of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, uh, the other part is that I'm not. I'm afraid my kid won't get into Stuyvesant. You know? Exactly, ninety-five percent. Five percent. I hate my yeah, kid. Five percent. Five percent. I don't want to be around my kid. Do you guys um, see? Uh, yeah. Speaking of accommodating reality, uh, like a few weeks ago, Dolly Parton for one of these like website <laughs> commercials re 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 recorded nine to five. And as five oh, yeah, to yeah, nine, yeah, yeah. because because oh, yeah. you have to do I a second job that. on your blog selling oh, wow. goods and yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's like yeah. that's like Doing turning a, a turning a second wave feminist icon on its head, you know? Wow. And, and working a second yeah. job. Interesting. I know. I know. And I think that uh, I don't know. I, I the other thing that confuses me about why this isn't a bigger deal is just that look the as we can see with the school reopening stuff at some point, like the thing that people care the most about is their kids welfare. Right. And if there is going to be a mass movement, it's going to come from that people's concern about their kids. Right. It's the same question. Like, can you imagine what this pandemic would be like if it was killing kids and if kids, you know, kids are young, kids are generally unaffected by it. Um, you know, for, to a large extent, but if like, instead of killing all the old people, it was killing fucking young kids. Like, I don't know what would happen. We'd probably be in like some sort of worldwide meltdown, nuclear war type of situation. And so yeah, God. Um, anything within this pandemic that does affect parents with kids seems like it should be the top priority, but you know, it's not. And I don't know why that is. Yeah. I've, I, I don't know. I, I do think part of it is like the victory of the traditional, tra- the victory of like traditionalism, this idea that um, this sort of, uh, what's the word? Like, um, uh, sort of taboo on thinking of family care as labor and and people taking advantage of the fact that parents will exploit themselves to take yeah. care of their children and to and have a job at the same time. So that might be something that might be one place to start is to start a movement to make people think about family care not as not as care work, not as biologically or culturally or socially um, sort of something you just kind of like have to swallow, but as something you have to, be compensated for, you know, yeah. either either indirectly or directly. Um, I think that would be a huge step forward because I think that is one of the victories of neoconservatism. For sure. Neoconservatism. <laughs> and we should, we should say that, like, yeah. the Wages for Housework movement in the 70s was a moment where, you know, although some, you know, it was a small movement that was, it introduced this symbolic discourse that I think is still useful now to think about, like, yeah, hell yeah, we should be paid for this, you know, yeah. and... Do you think... I'm sorry, Tim, no, I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah. Do you do you think that like uh you know, some of the things that are floated around, which is like giving several thousand dollars per child in cash payments and stuff like that, do you think that would constitute any of that? I think that's a really great start. I mean, that was one of the demands that Silvia Federici and other people um were putting forward at that time, at that moment, where they were saying, you know, Basically, that would be a recognition of women's labor because women were the ones doing it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. if there's like a per child voucher, that is essentially a recognition of women's work. I mean, obviously, we don't want to accept that that is women's yeah. work. Only, I mean, I, but, you know, it's a start. Yeah. And I've heard anecdotes that things are really much better for parents in 
Germany, Australia, even Japan. Totally. And I don't know why. I assume there's part of that. There's like a feminist argument. And I also think there's just like a government commitment that economic development comes from freeing up people's labor and not exploiting them to the bone and all that stuff. Yeah. Well, Um, and in places like Japan and Korea where there's like a negative birth rate. Yeah. Like they are throwing money at people, right? But like, like right. And the U.S.'s solution to underdevelopment is to... um, is to like uh, just bring in more migrant workers to compensate for that and just exploit its own population to the bone. And they're not really worried about the birth rate um, yet. Yeah, right? and to like right. pull money from schools every single year. And then once you're like, oh wait, we need the schools and we can't exploit you anymore. You're actually gonna just not show up to work then to like throw everybody under the bus and call them like racist or whatever, you know, it's just despicable. Yeah. We've already done that episode, so I won't rant about it, but um, <laughs> I want to read one last part of the, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, the school thing, is, I don't know, it, it's, it's just so particularly triggering to me because I do think it is this one nexus where a type of like a, you know, like I, we haven't talked about this in a while and I think it's good, but you know, it is a place where a type of modern neoliberal type of identity politics that it's focus on race has been perverted into a different type of argument, right? And that that argument is mostly to, I'm uh, to, to benefit wealthy white people. <laughs> and um, no, it really is. And, and like, it's the clearest example, right? Like if you, like, and it is a, it is a very, it is very good evidence that we should push back against a lot of it. And yet, you know, it's hard to do it because you just always sound like an asshole. So, uh, yeah. Last part I want to read before we stop talking about this, which is, and this is from the article, moms carry the burden in opposite sex couples. It is mothers who do the majority of the domestic chores and child related planning. Even when both parents work and the woman is the breadwinner, it is moms who tend to be responsible for the health of their families, the sick days, the doctor's appointments, the worrying about germs, as well as the caring for older relatives. Moms remain the vast majority of single parents in this country, some of whom have had to choose uh, in this pandemic between leaving young children at home alone or risking their jobs. It's a, dese- it's, a res- it's a recipe for madness, said Lauren Elder, a political scientist at Hartwick College in New York who's been studying the mental health effects of parenting in the pandemic. It's a cliche, but it's also true. You don't get a day off from being a mom. Last part, sorry, this is very long. Some have hoped that this could be a galvanizing moment for mothers, a point of common rage. The moment when it became clear once and for all that our, quote, our system and our politicians have completely abandoned working parents, said Jessica Lee, a senior attorney at the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California Hastings College of Law. Um, what, what, what do you think about like is this is this like the ultimate abandonment um, is this like the thing that do you think that people are having a clear vision of you know like I, I think it is right and I, I think that it goes it's somewhere outside of the circles of media right and I think that's why people don't get it but I think there are millions of families in this country and you know I, I know of some and you know I know that there are that, that people are you know friends of mine people who really struggling during this period of time and they do see it as as evidence that america is destroyed is broken mm-hmm. right yeah. like nothing works like that that uh they can't that they don't give a shit about you and they don't even want to think about it right like they just want to tell you do x y and z let's get this pandemic under control and then when they don't do shit and then the pandemic gets out of control they just blame everyone you know they yeah, blame yeah. everyone's person like and so, like, uh, I don't know. I, I do think that that is a huge inflection point, this this idea that they abandoned mothers during this time. 
I hope so. But I think, again, I think the feminization of that, like this whole, even the whole like language that we use around like a working mother versus like, huh. if you stay at home, you don't work, right? All that stuff. Like, I think there is, because of that, still a ghettoization of the struggle. You know, I mean, men really would need to hop on board for it to go anywhere just because that's where we are. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I wish I agreed with her because I, I, yes, I agree that it exposes everything. I just don't know that we're mobilized in any way to address it. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think that okay. either. I just yeah. think that it exposed everything. Yeah, I yeah, hope no, no, it's no. clarifying for people. Oh, my God, do I hope it's clarifying yeah. for people. Like, if you had any illusions, right, right. those illusions are gone now. If you want to be like, let's, uh, you know, we're going to, the way that I'm going to deal with this illusion is that I'm going to unite with my fellow working moms and we're going to overthrow Fucking capitalism. <laughs> I don't know how many, I don't know how many people are at that point. Yeah. I think people are just at a point of like desperation. Yeah. And this is not over yet. Yeah. We still got like another year of this at best. Right. And I just, I don't know. I, I, I think that, oh um, <laughs> I know. That I know. So, I mean, I, I was I thought curious about it though, today, for you guys, like, like as, working dads with you know partners who are women who are working also like what is the negotiation in your household every day and also just generally in your marriages as parents like how do you guys make sure that you do your share and that it doesn't fall disproportionately on your partners oh man i don't know um I th- you mean during the pandemic? Or I guess before? especially during the pandemic, but I assume it's just an ongoing process because you don't want to yeah. be that guy who doesn't do anything like the people in the story. Right. <laughs> yeah. <You have> fights. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, you work, there are you, arguments. You work it out. Uh, there are some <laughs> dirty, they're, they're, they're dirty looks, you know. Um, but uh, I don't know. At the beginning when uh, – when it was just us with our daughter every single day and the pandemic was so scary, yeah. right? Like you would go to 7-Eleven and flip out because like somebody had breathed weirdly with a mask on. Yeah. <laughs> that was really hard, right? And um, I think our child suffered a lot during that time. And um, now that there's some, there's a little bit of help, it's a little bit better, mm-hmm. but it's nothing compared to what it was before. You know, where you would have like parents come by sometimes you would have, uh, you know, you'd have preschool that that was reliably open. You would have schedules. You would send them, you know, like you go to ballet or something like that and you get an hour off to like go have a coffee or something like that. Yeah. And all that's gone. And so. And it was easier um, to slice up equitably at that time, do you think? Whereas now it's chaotic. So you don't sure. know if you're doing 50 percent kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think my wife would probably say no. You know, <laughs> hopefully she's not listening to this, but like <laughs> like emailing it to Casey. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah, Tammy, come on. Um don't 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 Oh, uh, I am you know, we have a pretty set responsibilities, uh-huh. I think. Yeah. I do a lot of the I do I think I would say I do most of the cooking, mm-hmm. you know, and um and then Casey like puts Frankie, the child to bed, mm-hmm. you know, and um, we sort of split up who drives around. And but I don't know, a lot of the time is spent uh, attending to her because she's the only child, you know, she doesn't have yeah. siblings to occupy her. And so she needs constant attention, and um, splitting that up is difficult. And I don't know what the split is, but like you're just trying to survive at this yeah. moment, you know, and so. Yeah. 
uh, you see someone struggling and you try and help them out, I guess, you know, like mm-hmm. maybe that's the way it was done. But no, we don't have like a dos- We don't have like a spreadsheet that, that <laughs> yeah. some families do, really? you know, but like, that's yeah, yeah, we, we, we don't have that right now. Mm-hmm. And it's reading all this did make me feel extremely guilty about a lot of stuff. I don't know. Andy, did you feel guilty about stuff? Um, well, yeah, he's like, no, I do. I do 90%. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to say my wife is busier than I am. She has a more demanding uh-huh. job than I do. Um, and I think maybe in the end, that means I've done more than my otherwise normal share, which makes, makes it mm-hmm. actually 50-50. I don't know. Um, <laughs> right. Interesting. Uh, I, yeah, you kind of like do this. I mean, uh, to begin with, you just do the stuff that you feel more comfortable doing. So like I like to cook also. So I wound up doing cooking, doing a lot of cooking. Yeah. Um, I will say there's a lot of chunks in the middle of the day where we just give her an iPad. And mm-hmm. when she's given a choice, she will rather sit with an iPad with my wife rather uh-huh. than, with, than with me. I've tried to, I, I mean, she sat down here with me a few times, but it's a basement without a window and surrounded by books. So I don't know if it's, it's not the most, it's not the most inviting. <laughs> yeah. I actually, I brought Fergie down to our base, to my basement here with a, uh, with an iPad and she was, she just walked up. The yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> She was like, it's boring down here. Oh my here. God, this, this is, is why the man cave like, exists. Now we know. I was like, yeah, it's like, yeah, it is certainly boring It's a strategic spatial arrangement. <laughs> There's like 200 empty cans of Diet Coke everywhere. <laughs> and it, it's, it feels like like the sad hoarder space, you know? So maybe, maybe I need to just up. Maybe I just need to make oh it more God. child friendly. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, I don't know. Is there, I, I think that we... I don't know what, do you have any like sort of thoughts on how this is going to go forward in terms, not in terms of like what the government is going to do, because I think we're going to basically find that the government is going to be probably better than we, maybe our worst case scenario, but it certainly will disappoint us in a lot of ways, right? Like it, like the Biden plan, uh, if it goes through and if it does, it would expo- it would expand unemployment insurance, it would extend paid leave, it would continue moratoriums on evictions, um, all that would help. Right. Yeah. And it's like, can you imagine the Trump administration like extending fucking moratorium evictions or any Republican administration? No. Right. So in that way, it might make it better than it was a year ago. But I don't know, like, you know, like in terms of doing even things like what Kamala suggested, maybe that will happen. But, um, you know, it, it seems like at some point the austerity Hawks will come in and yeah. do their thing. I mean, the other thing is, like, you could make the argument that, okay, all this stuff is good, but in COVID, you don't want to send your kid to a place uh, where they could get infected, of course. So um, what to what extent is, like, what can you do in COVID times, I guess is the question. And um, I don't know. Like, that's something we've thought about. Like, we would be willing, we would totally be willing to pay for a babysitter to help us out every once in a while. But for mm-hmm. COVID reasons, right, we don't. Yeah. We just yeah. we're not going to go into like the websites and just ask ask them we don't know to do it. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that's another question that that like I think the Warren solution of universal healthcare is or t- healthcare. Well, that'd be great too. Childcare yeah. um, would be great, right? But then the question is like, well, how many people are willing to send their children to like a government paid for childcare center if they feel like it's exposing them to to risk? So. Um, that exacerbates a lot of this stuff. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So the answer so far seems to be very few people will actually do it when, you know, it has to be when it's like, okay, we'll put your kid in the car and send them there. Right. Um, it seems to be less popular than it would 
in reality than mm-hmm. it seems like it might be. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know, Tammy, we, there's a lot of stuff in here from uh, yeah. in our no, document I mean, about... I'm glad we touched on it. I think like in our bonus episodes and future episodes, it's a good thing that we'll talk about more, just about like how feminism intersects with the kind of left transnationalism we're interested in and you know what we can do yeah. under Biden. Because I think it's and just, this is like the beginning of this conversation really, given what a crisis it is in the family. Yeah, and I think that if nothing else, it's been a, I don't know, and this is, I'm not saying this in a positive sense, but it's, I think it has probably been a radicalizing moment for a lot of mothers. Um, and I think that, you know, what, what happens with that is up in the air, but good Lord, you know, like, uh, people leaving their jobs, people realizing their jobs aren't going to help them. Yeah. Right. Like people being like, you have to be on the zoom call at eight o'clock and just sit around and there's jack shit done and your kids screaming. You're just why, like, what is this world that I'm living totally. in? You know? Um, and that happens up and down the economic spectrum. That's right. right. Like, rich people also feel that way you know i'm sure there are a lot of lawyers who are just like i can't believe that i have to do this shit you know even if like (laughs) like wow that's another pointless fucking zoom meeting (laughs) you know like like david graber's (laughs) bullshit jobs like way more of the jobs are bullshit right now than yeah (laughs) yeah so many bullshit jobs that like uh the bullshit jobs you just have to keep doing because you know they're still going yeah um all right uh this is all this is something that i don't know we debated talking about this second topic on our show today. Uh, but we think we have to talk about it. And I think we have to talk about it just because, you know, three of us are Asian American and um, we've gotten a lot of questions about it. And uh, I don't know, I, I've, I've, we talked about it a little bit last week, but what's been happening with the attacks in the Bay Area and this sort of, uh, the attacks in the Bay Area specifically, like what actually is it? And then also this larger question of like, what is happening with, Asian American advocacy right now because it does seem to be this is a people are comparing to Vincent Chin right like mm-hmm. as this huge watershed moment I don't know if it's as big as Vincent Chin but it certainly is a watershed moment right like it is it is something that I don't know not to be like crass about it but I can't remember the last time that there was an Asian American concern at all right like outside of like a few like the Harvard thing I guess right but like um, Jeremy Lin <laughs> being cut from the Toronto Raptors. <laughs> like, what, what, what are... Equivalent what are violence. The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are the, what are the, what are, like, the big issues before this, you know, like, in terms yeah. of, like, trying to protect, like, what an identity is or, like, trying to project what a, the pol- politics of this identity should be. I don't really remember a point, maybe even in my own life, although I was born during, you know, I was very young during the Vincent Chin thing. Like, maybe it is, maybe it is the first time since Vincent Chin you know, that any of this Or the riots. Happened. Oh, yeah, the riots, yeah. Since 92, at least, exactly. right? Yeah. The other one I was thinking was, I don't know how big this gets, uh, the Wen Ho Lee thing in 95. Oh, yeah, but that's this, true. But this has happened. That's like, so in, different, though. Yeah, and, and it happened in yeah. Philadelphia a few years ago without, which is to say, uh, I think a temple professor who was Chinese descent was, you know, arrested for being a spy when it turned out he had no connection. That's right. That happens oh, yeah, a lot, yeah, and yeah, I think it's yeah. still happening, but it never really becomes more than just like an Asian concern, it seems like. Yeah, it just happened at MIT. Right, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, 
um, as our listener who has the same name as me, that spells it J A I. Like incorrect way. Um, has pointed out. No, no, he's he's right. I think J A E is like the most Korean way to spell mm-hmm. it, right? Like, but um, look, he's his his is much more unique than mine. Um, and he's he posted that in our Discord, and I I had never heard of it, you yeah. know. And, and yeah, thank you yeah, for for that posting either. that because uh, that's just sort of how below the radar that stuff is. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, 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 what do you, I think the first thing we should talk about is what is actually happening, right? And so Oakland side, which is this wonderful, uh, I think I think it's not for profit, right? Newsroom yeah. that was started here um, as an extension of Berkeley side, which is a longstanding local newspaper. Uh, they got some money to expand, and they they decided to uh, <coughs> sort of offer local news reporting in Oakland, which has you know for the same reason as every other local newspaper just been gutted in terms of of local coverage there are not many reporters covering it one of the best reporters is this guy darwin uh bond who uh who has been reporting on bay area for as long he was reporting on i think when i lived here 10 years ago you know and so like there is a he is like you see him everywhere you know like when you at least this summer when i would go to protest i'd be like oh yeah there's that guy (laughs) (laughs) he's like the guy there's two guys in the bay area i think it's darwin and then there's this guy henry k lee who uh covered every single murder for the uh for the san francisco chronicle oh wow so like he would he would be like the reporter and just go out and see a murder and then he would write up like a short thing about it like somebody wrote this song about him because he was his byline was so ubiquitous every time someone got killed (laughs) (laughs) i met him once he was a really nice guy and i was like how do you deal with it like all you do is go see these murders he's like i watch a lot of bravo (laughs) 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 oh Oh, man anyway so darwin um along with a co-author wrote a Two articles. Oh, yeah, but we for, should recognize for... Momo too, because she's a legend in her own right through Hyphen yes, Magazine yes, yes. and other yes, freelance yes. reporting. Momo Chang. So, Momo Chang, right? That Mo, is Momo now on staff there? Is she on staff at it Oakland seemed, Side? I, I wasn't sure. Yeah, I mean, she. Okay. I feel like I was reading her also 10, 15 years ago. I know. Two legends of the game. Yeah, Momo exactly. Chang and Darwin Bond Thank Grant. you guys. Um, <laughs> but they wrote this piece, and I thought it was. I thought it was. I don't know. I just thought that it was good. Like it was measured and it was thoughtful and it was really just around the central question of like, what exactly is happening? You know, like you have these videos come out and we all know from social media's distorting effect in a lot of ways that a few videos can be strung together and turn into some sort of trend, right? So is there a current trend of people attacking people in Oakland's Chinatown? And it seems like their answer, the, at least the answer of their reporting, is maybe not, you know? Maybe it was one guy who uh, attacks a lot of people, right? The guy who is, he seems to be very mentally ill, and he has, I don't know, some rap sheet of like 12 of these assaults, yeah, right? Gosh. Where he just randomly attacks people. And that, um, you know, three of them were, the most three recent ones, were Asian elders, right? And that, 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 there's also been upswings in petty theft and and sort of robberies in Oakland's Chinatown as well. But that doesn't necessarily fall too far outside of the rise in crime generally here in, in the Bay Area, right, or in, especially in the East Bay. And that if you look at it statistically, it's hard to say that, like, this is part of some large trend, mm-hmm. right? If you take away the one guy attacking three people, then you, and you, then you have the thing in San Francisco where the person was actually killed, right? Like, yeah. Are those just two isolated incidents? Like, so that's those. That's a question that they ask. I don't know. What did you guys think? 
I mean, I, I thought it was it was similar to something we've talked about on the show, which is uh, sort of racial disparity is important, but it also has to be kind of contextualized to make sure if it's the same thing as racial motivation or racial ideology. Animus, right? Yeah. And you know, there's that statistic that Oakland Chinatown apparently is, on average, well, not surprisingly, on average, much older and much more first generation than other neighborhoods. Which, like, from my perspective, is great. Like, I would love to hang out with old Chinese people and talk to them all the time. <laughs> but from a criminal perspective, it also makes them vulnerable, right? So this is a there's a sort of demographic element that has not, that isn't necessarily about the racial like motivation of the people who are attacking them. It's more about the sort of the objectively easier targets um, for crimes of opportunity is the term yeah. that that comes up. And um, so I thought that was a sort of persuasive, at the very least. Um, questioning the idea of a sort of simplistic, this group hates this group, race, race war kind of narrative that might be emerging. Yeah. yeah, in the article that they interview this woman named Alvina Wong, and she's the campaign and organizing director for Asian Pacific Environmental Network, a nonprofit organization that organizes working class Asian immigrant and refugee families to push for a clean and healthy environment. APEN has been headquartered in Oakland, Chinatown since 2002. Wong stressed that the pandemic-fueled anti-Asian hate is not necessarily linked to the current rise in crimes in Chinatown, noting that robberies in Chinatown take place year-round, particularly around Lunar New Year. Quote, these crimes and violent situations that happen in Chinatown have been happening for a while, she said. But Wong says it's impossible to divorce, this is the important part, but Wong says it's impossible to divorce the pressure and fear residents have been enduring for over a year from the massive outcry over what's happening now. Chinatown, already shrinking before the pandemic, has been particularly hard hit by shelter-in-place orders and the economic collapse. As many as a third of all Chinatown businesses are closed permanently or temporarily due to COVID, with notable restaurant closing or signaling that they might have to. How much can we take before we break? It feels like a breaking point for many people, said Wong, right? And I don't know, like, I find that to be more convincing, right, that, that this area is really struggling and that um, people are afraid, yeah. and that that these incidents, you know, when you watch the video, it's fucking horrifying, right? Like it's old people just getting decked, and you know, for no reason at all. And uh, you you have one across the bay in San Francisco as well, and that you know you can't fault people for seeing what they want to, what not even what they want to see. They don't want to see it. They for for feeling like all oh, this is targeted, especially when seems like nobody else cares right and that is sort of that i think th that is sort of the mix and under which all of this comes out is like horrifying videos right a few in a row and then uh and then you know general frustration yeah. now the flip side of this is you could also say the same thing about you know police killings right like they happen in clusters the videos comes out and when they happen in clusters people uh, take to the streets, right? And so, um, yeah, and I don't wasn't know. Yeah, some what, of the reaction also to the killings of Asian people, like, oh, well, how come people didn't care when, like, black people were getting killed sort of thing? And it, yeah. so it's a bit, I don't know, but I think the thing about this article, I think it's really great and they did an awesome job. Even if we know, though, that this guy Muslim has this, habit of just kind of knocking people out of all races across many years. I don't know that it addresses the the feeling nevertheless that yeah. people have that people don't care about 
crimes against Asian people and that there's something maybe going on still, you know, between the black community and the Asian community in that area that needs to be addressed. So I'm just curious, like, I think it, you know, it's obviously like an invitation to, for some dialogue or something to happen. And I don't know kind of what politically is in place for it. It seems like a lot of the the sources that were interviewed for the story, you know, they wanted to obviously be careful and not inflame tensions further for no reason. Yeah. But I'm sure it doesn't, knowing that like this guy's behavior doesn't necessarily help people's feelings. Yeah. yeah and there's also the question of, well, why are they easy targets? Yeah. Right? And it's right. like, well, they're easy targets because like nobody gives a shit. Police aren't good. You know, like there's not much protection. And if you kill one of them, it's not front page news like it is if you kill like a white person, you know? And so uh, that's why they're easy targets. And like that, I think, I don't think that's discounted by like what what was written here. But, you know, I I do think that's that's also why people are mad. It's not that they're wrong because they've been tricked into this perception that like this is a trend, right? They're mad because their whole lives they know that this is true and this is evidence that it's true. And then when three of them happen with video, it's not like they're mad because they think this is just happening. It's the same thing with police killings. It's like it's not like everybody thinks mm-hmm. that police killings started in 2014 yeah. when Mike Brown got killed, right? Like that was an inflection point with Eric Gardner and then it builds, right? And then you have another inflection point with like Alton Sterling and Baton Rouge and Philando Castile in St. Paul, right? And it's the same frustration. She's like, this always happens, yeah. right? And so I think I think that that needs to be given a lot of attention here is that many people I don't think really think that like old Asian people are being attacked everywhere around the country as part of some trend, right? I think that people think that this happens all the time and nobody has ever cared and now is the time to care. Like, I think that's more of it than 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 the argument that like this is like now like a like some sort of like nationwide epidemic. Oh. Yeah, it's yeah. it's interesting because I think the story we would have heard the most of the last twelve months is it's about anti it's about COVID related anti Asian yeah, that's what I was scapegoating, thinking. but um but this is like pushing it against that, but at the same time saying kind of like what you're saying, Tammy, like just because um, even if this article is correct, they could, these, 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 um, these sentiments can still be valid, right? And the validity is rest, doesn't rest upon this particular crime, or, but maybe yeah. like a several decades long history, sort of accumulated mm-hmm. sentiments and experiences. And yeah. I guess the productive or the most optimistic reading would be that this could lead to kind of an opening or venting of those, a, a sort of expression of those frustrations. Mm-hmm. Um uh, in a way, and you know, before uh, before it gets much worse, but you know, that's that's perhaps a little overly hopeful. Yeah, it is interesting that it is exactly the flip side of the argument that conservatives use against Black Lives Matter, right? Is. Because they're just making the exact same argument, which is like, well, statistically speaking, you know, this doesn't happen that much, and uh, it's just because of social media and cell phone videos, right? And uh, like, it's the same art. They're making the exact same argument. And I'm, I'm not saying that to discount the argument that they're making. Right. But it is functionally the same argument. Right. It put on debate brain. And like, it's the same <laughs> argument. Right. Like they're making the, or lawyer brain, Tammy, like they're making the same <laughs> argument. Um, I don't know that that is somewhat distressing. And I think. Yeah, in, well, in there is there, well, the, there has to bit. be a colorblind element to the leftist response to a race war type argument does that make sense like just to to to, yeah. to to kind of um to defang the race war argument you have to kind of 
make some sort of colorblind argument about how class isn't colorblind necessarily, but is equal opportunity, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Like in some sort of horseshoe way, they kind of meet in, in some yeah. far yeah. off I mean, universe. I mean, it's like, hey, this isn't as bad as you think it is. And um, this was one bad actor, you know, and the things that you think are not real. Right. Like, it's just coincidence. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't think that that's I think that's a mischaracterization of why people are mad. Right. That mm-hmm. that. Um, but I think it's important okay, to, have the, so, to have the data, quote unquote, or the, the sort of reporting. Right. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. The reporting's great. Yeah. I just I think and maybe it's unfair to the article, but I do think that that's sort of when the, when the title is like, what's really happening? Kind of suggesting that. Right. Um, all right. So. Let's go to a good part of the, part of the article, something that we can all get mad about together, <laughs> which is during a widely covered February 3rd press conference held at the Pacific Renaissance Plaza in the heart of Chinatown, Mayor Libby Schaff criticizes City Council President Nikki Ford, uh, Fortunato uh, Bass's unsuccessful budget proposal last summer to cut police funds that, according to Schaff, protect Chinatown residents and businesses. Bass and Councilwoman Carol Fife pushed back pointing out that recent cuts to Chinatown police presence were made by the mayor's administration and accusing Schaff of sowing division between black and Asian communities. Libby Schaff, I mean, what the fuck, (laughs) you know? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this thing has every intersection, including, like, supposedly progressive mayors, like, blaming activists and, like, you know, and, and, like... It, it, it and it's like it feels like you know the uh, it feels like Nancy Pelosi playing AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib mm-hmm. for everything you know it's just like like what the fuck it like, is incredible just, they just get like Carol Fife just got fucking elected and it's like, like you're attacking like the Asian one and the black one like yeah and, okay. and there's like well it's your fault Nikki you know Nikki Fortunato is Filipina and okay. Carol Fife is black yeah. for people who don't know and like the white mayor Libby is like, it's is your very fault white. <laughs> it's such yeah. a bad look she's like if you guys hadn't been doing all that agitating by the way which I would like show up to opportunistically <laughs> you know mm. um, then, then none of this would have happened because the police which by the way like they can't find enough police officers for Oakland period you know like that, like that's part of the problem yeah. is that like you know like and like they can't find enough people to staff the fuck and and also the city's somewhat bran- uh bankrupt as well but it's also just like OPD like you know like even when they would do uh when when those protests were happening in Oakland right and people are firing off tear gas and stuff like that a lot of those people are like deputies and, and from like Contra Costa County like you know people from like Berkeley huh. the people from like Fresno coming in because like they don't have enough staff and then to just be like this decades-long police problem that we have is just because of something that happened last summer you know and also it's your fault two so people bizarre. who have who <laughs> like one of whom at the time was just like a private citizen who was not on the city council. <laughs> fucking crazy <laughs> it's fucking crazy um I don't know. I agree with the people who think that Libby Chef, maybe, you know, if we are as generous as possible, maybe like without really thinking too much of it is actually trying to create a divide to protect herself. And I would say most likely she is doing it consciously, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, singling out these two women and basically saying, well, you know, like it's because uh, it's because, uh, you know, you guys asked for all these police budget cuts most of which by the way to like oakland schools you know like for yeah. police officers in schools and so it's just like oh yeah it's Jeez. the school cops who who would have protected like the fucking old people in oakland like what the fuck are you talking about anyway sorry. did you feel though that bass and fife were put in an awkward situation where they were having to essentially defend the police 
because it, uh, it there is something kind I of know, awkward what do you think? about yeah. it you know yeah where they then have to be like no yeah. it's you who cut the police it's like oh well so do you but you do want to cut the police right that's, that's <laughs> yeah, a defensive yeah. right. right she she it's put them in like very she hard. put them in the yeah, yeah. she put them, that's that's very clever of her. wait so <laughs> so she's good at debate you, yeah exactly so, so should we defund the police yeah, she's exactly. like doing cross x you know she's like uh she's like Okay, at this point you said that uh, you said that I defunded <laughs> exactly. the police. Does that and that that's why this happened? Does that mean that we shouldn't have defunded the police? Right? And, and the, yeah, no, it's it's very clever of Libby Schaff. I do, I see why she like has such high political aspirations at this point. Um, oh man. Um, all right, one last thing about this, and then we should get to a listener question, which is uh, the Alameda County Public Defender's Office has rep- represented... All these are from the article, by the way. I don't read... I don't talk like this. <laughs> the Alameda County Public Defender's Office has represented Muslim in the past and is also in the early stages of reviewing the most recent incidents. But Public Defender Brandon Wood said, quote, so far, as there is absolutely, so far there is absolutely no evidence of xenophobia against Asian Americans. And that quote, connecting this case to a rise in racist Asian uh, against Asian Americans is not appropriate and it should not influence a district attorney and the courts as Mr. Muslim's case makes its way through the system. This case should not be used to pit minority against minority. Um, <clears throat> that is this last part that I think we should talk about. We talked about it a bit last week, which is like there is a contingent of people who are going to want to throw the book at this guy. Yeah. Right. And also the guy in um San Francisco, Mm -hmm. who I believe is 19 or 20 years old, who, uh, and, you know, I think that's the uncomfortable point for a lot of people that we know who are Asian American, who share our politics, right? Like where I think that people are okay with being frustrated. I think they're okay for saying, yeah, this is a problem nationwide, right? I think they're okay with being mad about it and not sounding, you know, not being too afraid that people are going to call them out for being racist. But the sentencing part is, I think, where the rubber is going to hit the road. And I think that's where the big divide is going to come out. Um, Tammy, you don't believe in hate crime uh, at all. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. yeah. I'm generally against them being used to as an aggravating factor in sentencing and charging. Yeah. yeah. Annie, what about you? What, do you think I, that hate crime should be? So is, I, I haven't studied or thought about this as much. So Tammy, is it that – because I was, I was just thinking about it just now that the, the justification for hate crime in sentencing would be either – a some sense of vengeance or b some sense of deterrence right that if you could if you punish someone harder for it this will deter people from doing it in the future but that assumes the deterrence is the, yeah. but that assumes like you believe in like criminal deterrence actually works and you're saying yeah. it doesn't really i think that's right and yeah. i think i mean the the good argument for it is like obviously the entire country is based on violence against black people and native american people and so if you have a kkk murder that should be considered worse than a normal murder but i think i and i'm totally just stealing this idea from like my public defender friends but the reason they oppose that escalation is because they feel like a crime should be a crime and so many fine lines can be drawn around this and also it can be used the other way like if there is a black or asian person who kills a white person and calls them cracker right is that then going to be a hate crime? So it's this kind of reverse, you know, affirmative action thing. And so that's generally why they are against it. Um, So, you know, I think it's, I think it's tricky, but I think on balance, I would just rather have a murder be a murder. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think that there's a lot of X factors that come into it, whether who the prosecutor, the DA totally. is, for example, really who point. the police are, yeah. right? Like hate crime statistic reporting is a joke because it yeah. relies on 
police departments to voluntarily report stuff to the FBI, which many don't, you know, and which many don't because they don't think the thing that happened was a hate crime and they just get to make the call themselves. And so when you have something like this, which is that under normal circumstances, this guy shoving three pe- uh, attacking people in Oakland would not have been prosecuted as a hate crime. But because it's under this um, because it's under this political moment, it will be right. right. And like this guy, exactly. should, should this guy pay for what everybody else has done, even if he did it as part of uh, what is actually a trend? Let's say all that is true. Yeah. Should he be the one that that pays when other people yeah. haven't in the, you know, right. down, like That's in the past. Thing. So those are difficult questions. And I think, I mean, this guy, the public defender, which my understanding is, has a very good reputation, Brendan Woods, and he's African-American. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the fact that he says this case should not be used to pit minority against minority. I mean, it's pretty, I think it's quite extraordinary actually to have an official of that level say something like that. Yeah. I don't know. So I, I you know, I, I was moved by his comments. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the Vincent Chin case, the outrage was the crime, but also the sentencing, right? The fact that the two men who yes. did it. The outrage was the sentencing. Right, exactly. Did not yeah, get yeah. what, not that it wasn't prosecuted as a hate crime, just that they didn't get what they should have gotten if it were like, yeah. if Vincent Chin was anyone else, right? So, yeah, yeah I, mean, I guess you have to have some belief that as long as you're consistent and uniform across the board. Right. But uh, the people who would, going push in the other direction would be something would say something like unless it's prosecuted as a hit crime you're letting them off the hook that you have to well that's what it's going to be that's what this that's what the gambit is going to be that's thrown at the da's office in san francisco especially that you, you right? have to because make it a hate crime because it's chessa right like uh, they're going to say you have to make it a hate crime and if you don't make it a hate crime then we're gonna then we're gonna protest and you know oh, um man. And it usually is over in the end. It's usually not over the thing itself. It's usually over the, over the verdict and over the sentencing, mm-hmm. right? Right. I mean, you know, Rodney King was not when Rodney King was beat. It was when the jury in Simi Valley acquitted them. Yeah. Like yeah. that's when that's when it happened. So, um, I don't know. I think that something similar is probably going to happen here because I have a very hard time believing that both these will be prosecuted as as hate crimes to like the full extent mm-hmm. of the law. And I, there's a lot of Asian people here, you know, and um, there are a lot of very angry people here. And I don't know. I, I think that like it's counterproductive to both sort of, you know, shame all those people and say, oh, you unwashed masses of like, you know, like, don't you know, like, don't you know about abolition? You know, like <laughs> people are fucking mad. They're pointing out a fucking unequal system that is unequal. Mm-hmm. You know, they're pointing out something real, which is that like, the, the justice system and the fucking police do not protect Asian people at all. You know, like these are very real things. Of course, they're fucking mad about it. And they, they want vengeance. And, you know, I think that it is, I don't know, if you have politics like the three of us, then, you know, I think that you just have to acknowledge the anger and, you know, yeah. try your best to convince people that the worst thing possible would be, you know, a fucking race war yeah. at this point. Like, who fucking wants that? I know. You know? And it does seem that, like people are organizing against that and trying to educate. So it's heartening yeah. from this article and from, like, the discussion on the Discord, too, with people who have local knowledge that a lot of the groups that have street cred with different Asian communities are, are doing that. Yeah, and, it's not, and it is not, to be clear, it is not just, like, you know, Ivy League educated no. <laughs> people ta- popping off on Twitter, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. These are exactly. real, these are real community <laughs> Actual organizations. Actual organizers, with re- yeah, not with real, Twitter people. No, with real ties yeah. who have been working with these communities for decades. And I think for that, you know, A, you're, ho- you're thankful that that exists, and B, 
it gives you a little bit of hope that this isn't going to end in like some sort of fucking race war even though right now it seems like maybe it will you know um uh so i don't know yeah if you're here in this area like uh you know i don't know get involved in some sort of way i certainly will be you know and uh i think it's the only thing we can really do because right like having like making it seem like every asian person wants these people thrown in jail for the rest of their lives fucking horrible you know it's like it it should not be where we go all right we have a listener question um and this is from stephanie she she posted this in our discord where we have a channel where people can ask questions this is much more lighthearted than this things we <laughs> yeah. i actually don't have any takes on this so i'm curious what you guys have to say seeing folks in this uh from all over the states makes me think about a running bit i have with my friends about the differences between east coast asians who are obsessed with race and identity <laughs> and west coast asians who are gentle and confident See, I, did. <laughs> I would flip that honestly <laughs> go on oh my god so amazing <laughs> I, love, I love that i love gentle and confident on our on one hand uh it, it's a joke but on the other hand the demographics of the place you grow up are obviously formative to your sense of identity this is the most obvious to me on the pod when uh jay talks about growing up and going to college in areas where there are almost no other asians and then later talks about how asian american solidarity seems like a myth quote you can't feel solidarity with people you aren't around I'm not really sure what my actual listener question is here, but I'd be interested in some kind of conversation about different regional strains. It's an interesting word to use, but she did put a qu- uh, question mark <laughs> of really Asian American identity. Like I grew up in. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I grew up in yeah the South African strain. Um, I grew which strain of Asian American is like uh, does does the AstraZeneca <laughs> vaccine not work on? I grew up in suburban New Jersey with lots of other Asians and related a lot more to Andy and Tammy's experiences growing up. Once again, you two are pitted against me. I feel like that's the theme of the show. But I, Everyone just, you know, it's okay. It's a story of my No, life. it's interesting, though, because um, we made the, cr- we, we took whatever, cross current. Uh, we went west to yeah. east, we went east to west. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like maybe it's, I don't know. Maybe you were like, I want to actually experience what it's like to be around a bunch of Asians. And Tammy and I were like, what is it like where there are no Asians? <laughs> That's not, I mean, where I am now, it's not like there's tons of Asian people, you know? Yeah, I still feel I like there's tons more. To like, I, mean, I didn't move to like, uh, you know, I don't know, Daily City. Cerritos. Or, or Cerritos, <laughs> yeah. Or like El Cavite, you know. Um, yeah, I moved to... Uh, to Berkeley, which is you know very diverse, and there's a lot of Asian people here, but it's not like I moved to yeah. Flushing or something, right? And Tammy and so I wound up in New York Valley. City for a lot, which is obviously has a ton of Asian people as well. Yeah. 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 Well, I, what do you think? Is there East Coast and West Coast Asians? So Obviously, funny. there are. But what's the difference? I think I wonder if the difference is actually. I had the same conversation with my friends um, in school. What in school? Um, in, in New York, a lot. Um, but then I think it might actually be a suburban versus urban thing is a big part of it. Cause, and she even says, and Stephanie even says like, she grew up in the suburbs where, and then she therefore was, relates to Tammy and me growing up in the suburbs more. Um, because like the other, the other strain that I know well is the Texas Asians <laughs> and the Texas Asians all grew up in this like hyper competitive, um, Taiwanese, uh, suburb of Dallas. But I'm, um, you know, we know like Texas has like Indian and Korean and all sorts of ethnic enclave. Um, Asian groups and Vietnamese and I think that might be the 
that that is more perhaps um, formative than the East versus West thing. Obviously, how close you are to the Pacific Ocean matters, just like yeah, by definition, right? Like, it's just harder to get from East Asia to New York or Philadelphia <laughs> than it is to get to LA. But um, yeah, I wonder if suburban versus urban might be more useful. I don't know, Tammy. What do you think? Yeah, or just like enclave versus not enclave. I mean. I love her gentle, confident thing. Um, but I'm just picturing these like super relaxed Asian elephants. Like, um, I, I think because actually my friend in, in California who grew up in like a 90% Asian high school and then went to Cal for college, she talks about East Coast Asians this way. Like, so, but, but I think the distinction for her is like, you know, do you grow up in a place where it's totally normalized and you don't have to think even in terms of solidarity because just like you're surrounded by Asians. So that would be the same in California as it would in New York city. Maybe if you were in a school in Flushing or something yeah, like, or that. like Bayside or, something or Bayside. Like that, exactly. Yeah. Um, so maybe that's a distinction, but yeah, I do think, I don't know for me, my personal experience was I grew up in and near Tacoma, Washington, which actually has a pretty sizable Koreatown and a lot of Korean immigrants. But when we first got there, we didn't really know that many. And my parents are atheists, so we didn't ha- we didn't have like a natural. Oh, so you didn't go to the church. church. Yeah. So, but then we started going to church because they were worried that we didn't know any Korean people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so it was this weird experience where. I actually was pretty attached to Koreanness and interested in it and spoke Korean and cared a lot. But like in high school, junior high and high school, I was kind of, I think the Koreans probably thought I was really whitewashed because a lot of the friends I'd grown up with were white. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, and then in college, I did a lot of Asian American stuff. Oh, you did? You joined the groups and all yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Did you like Lunar New Big Year? Time. Lunar New Big Year time. stuff? Yeah, right. Uh, so I don't know, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I think she, well, college is where all this stuff stuff happens. That's true. Right. That's true. Yeah. Um, and like people kind of, I don't know if you grew up in the San Gabriel Valley, you'd probably don't think that much about what Asian American solidarity is, you know, but you, you learn to codify and explain these things when you get to college and you join these groups and you take classes and you start to form your identity Generally, you probably swing about 40% too deep, you know, <laughs> and then and then you scale back and then that's who you are as a human being. Wait, so Jay, Jay did you get active in Asian stuff in college or were you? Uh, no, in graduate school. Oh, okay. I, this college I went to is so white. Right. It was, yeah, there you know, it was difficult. Enough. But like, um, I don't know. I guess I just didn't. I, I wrote about it in that piece. It's like, you know, like you think about it and you're like, well, you know, what is this? If if you're an ambitious young person, as I think I was when I was younger, <laughs> when I was like 15, 16, 17 years old, much different than I am right now where I'm extreme. You know, it's like sort of the opposite. But you, you know, you kind of think, like, well, it, there's a part of you that's like, well, it's going to just be like a. Like, are, am I putting a, am I putting like a limit on myself? You know, I am not defending these thoughts at all. I think they're bad thoughts to have, <laughs> right? But th- those are thoughts that yeah, I had. Yeah. And I don't know. I think, I think the real difference in what Stephanie is saying, it's not necessarily East Coast versus West Coast, because if you go to like Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you go to Koreatown, yeah, LA, there it. are some differences between those people. But I do think that their normalization with being Korean is pretty similar, yeah. right? It's- I think it's people who grew up around mostly white people and people who grew up around mostly Asians, yeah. right? And I think there are probably more pockets yeah. where there were on the West Coast than on the East Coast. That explains a lot For of sure. it. For yeah. sure. That's the, um, yeah, the kind of established yeah. enclave thing. Yeah. yeah and or I don't think enclave. I don't think that the obsession with identity is exclusive to people who grew up around white people because like 
You know, I did that fraternity story a few years back, right? And like, the, I sort of went into the Asian American fraternity system, and I talked to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. All those dudes grew up in flushing around all Asian people, you know. And then they're creating like, you know, rituals around Vincent Chin, and like, you know, they they are more obsessed with identity than I have ever been. Yeah, you know, they're more obsessed with the, is that with because identity. they felt. For actually, for the first time that they were having to defend themselves against the yeah. white majority of the college. I mean, it's almost the, I don't, the inverse of what we're talking about. I think that it was mostly ritualization, yeah, ritualized like myth-making, behavior. Personal myth-making in a, yeah, in a so maybe at the beginning, I think that was what the Asian American fraternities, why they created yeah. those those rituals. But I think a lot of these people were just doing it because that's what the fraternity does, you know? Um, I don't think they thought very deeply about it. I think the thing that they all recognized was like we're thought of as less than, right? right? And that nobody cares about us. We were not taught our history. Like those are the lessons, those are the things that they bring into it. But in terms of like creating identity and how they created identity and the rituals they did, I think that was mostly just like, this is what we do, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know, they were obsessed with identity entirely right and i think there is a way of uh creating an identity that's not just like me being neurotic and writing about how neurotic i am i agree that that can be annoying but um, but i don't know i don't think i'm like a super identitarian in any sort of way i mean i think i'm probably less than most Asians, right just like what well, i don't know don't bother me <laughs> plant these plants um, in the garden <laughs> basically just a hippie yeah you know, i was thinking that recently i was like my politics are basically that of like a hippie <laughs> anarchist hippie right yeah yeah like i don't really you know just leave me alone <laughs> everyone get along you know what's not <laughs> uh, yeah. we should help people the, the other thing i would say about the suburban thing i was just thinking about this what a obviously there's a class difference and a generational difference if you're, yeah. if you're in the suburbs, it's more recent and more middle class. But I think the other thing is that um, there's a historical element in the sense that a lot of these suburbs are Asians are moving there when the suburbs don't yet exist. So they're, they're kind of they're able to like build it from the ground up and they could like move there en masse and live near, near each other. Right. And this, I think. I mean, like Irvine or something like yeah, that? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know the full history, but I assume like parts yeah. of California, which were not really populated until the 20th century, um, the suburban Texas uh enclave that i know like those were all everyone was like making they were the first people to live in the houses that they lived in you know for instance and so they were able to choose yeah. where they live and they live near each other and places like fort lee i don't actually understand what fort lee is but it's like i guess at some point it was mostly like italian and some other groups and then somehow through networks the korean diaspora mm. took it over um but then if you are for instance living in like westchester new york you're just like you kind of are spaced out because there's already a society, right, a, a civilization there, and you can't just like <laughs> move on moss, you know, and, and just like and take it over, and so that might be. Well, Flushing was taken over that. Yeah, way. so I don't know what's going on in those like Fort Lee Fl- and Flushing. Flushing was like Flushing was one dude. Yeah. It's in my. I wrote a chapter okay. of my book about it. Yeah, so I don't want to give away. Okay. And now it's here. less. It's like, but it was oh, like it? one dude from Taiwan who had all this money because his uh, wife was like an heiress to some sort of like ah. noodle fortune. Ah. And he like, uh, he conscripted this uh, local politician who was white and they basically just like <laughs> built the whole fucking thing in like 10 years. But know? was there nothing before and there? They, like in terms of... No, no, there was a white working class right. fa- uh, neighborhood. In and they just bought right? them out or um, what? 
Yeah, it fucking gentrified yeah. them. You know, so like it was, uh, but I, I don't know if that term is appropriate. But also, but like they did gentrify yeah. them. Oh, you know, they displaced them. Yeah. Um, so each of these neighborhoods has separate yeah. histories. I mean, Koreatown, LA's history is basically that you know people started moving into the Wilshire Corridor. A lot of them were like people who were pretty shell shocked from Vietnam War, right? Koreans who worked there, and then they started bringing people over. And then this one guy started buying up real estate down there and he tried to create like a gigantic it's still there you know it's now like a Oaxacan restaurant but he tried to create this blue palace thing and um everything radiated out from like that central piece of real estate hmm. um which is yeah. on Wilshire and oh I don't know I Wilshire and Western Oaxacan or something restaurant. like that do you know the one I'm talking Gilligetza? about yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> but you know like you look at it and it's a blue palace like it's a blue yeah Korean yeah palace, I know what so, you're talking yeah, about yeah, that's yeah. nuts um but yeah, yeah, that was the that was sort of the. Sense. I just I just feel like the stereotype of the East Coast Asian would be the Asian who is outnumbered, right? Um, because they move into a place where they they aren't able to take it over. But I guess mm. that's not an East West thing because there are places in the East Coast where they yeah, quote unquote. Yeah, I really it over. think it's the enclave issue. But yeah, yeah, it's enclave Asians versus white Asians who grew up around white people. And you two are actually Andy. I think you grew up mostly around white people. I grew up a lot, um, around and, a lot of Koreans. But I, I didn't yeah, have a lot which of. May as well. You're be scarred white. from that. <laughs> yeah, worse white, worse yeah. than white people. I know. And yeah. I did my summers in Plano, Texas, and uh, I feel oh, like really? that's one of those. What? Yeah, I didn't know that. Plano is one of those core Asian. It's like kind of like oh yeah, Palo yeah. Alto of the South, I guess. That's nice. Um, yeah, so it's weird. I'd be like, I'd spend a summer with my cousins, all Taiwanese, all the time. Go back to Seattle, Washington, and it's just like. I just okay just forget all that and uh that's so funny yeah yeah I'm curious because we have a we have quite a few Canadians and some other like European diasporic Australian diasporic people in our discord and I'm curious what they would say my guess is there's probably something similar going on around like the kind of urban enclave thing but I'm yeah. not sure I assume like, like certainly around Toronto and Vancouver right I was like and those are like the recent recently built kind of communities right obviously they have longer histories but it's really like recent decade waves in terms of the density yeah do you think that the sec- the next generation is going to spread out from those enclaves, or do you think they're going to continue to be there? Hmm. Do you think the San Gabriel Valley in 30 years is still going to be mostly Chinese and, yeah. and Asian, or do you think people will sort of spread out <laughs> into different areas? I think so, too. I think, I don't think that there's but not, but not all of them. Intense. Not all of them. Like, the Philly, China, yeah. the Philly Koreatown is shrinking, for instance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, LA Koreatown is shrinking, Oh, too, it is? Okay. You know? Yeah, yeah. People are moving out, and there's less Korean people than there were before. They're replaced by, uh, I think, Bangladeshi mm-hmm. immigrants to a large extent, um, and there is a push to turn the, you know, to call it Koreatown slash Little Bangladesh, yeah, right? Oh, right? That got a big backlash <laughs> from the Korean American. You community, did that for like, Vice, right? Did you cover that? And I got oh. in all this trouble for that. Guys, why? By people who are calling me anti-Korean. Oh, jeez, come on. And <laughs> it's like, look, because you pointed out the racism. Yeah. God forbid. You know. I know, I know. And I was like, I don't even know it should be called Little Bangladesh, you know? But come on, like, you guys are, you're like, Racist. you know, like, there are a ton of, there are a ton of these people here. Like, <laughs> like you know, they just want some recognition. Yeah. If you're like, fuck you, so then, like, they're going to get mad. Like, how do you not understand yeah. that, you know? Like, they, like, it's just, uh, I don't know. And, um, you know, it was, it was. Atlanta's a new I, I don't need, I, oh, there's yeah. a new crew town. Atlanta, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know, because. The way that I always think about it is just like, all right, 
um, when these second generation kids go off to college, they come back, you know, and they have kids, you know, are they going to want to raise their kids in that same recent immigrant pressure cooker type of situation? I don't know. I don't know if they will, you know, mm. um, it's like why I think like, uh, if I was going to send my, like, I think I would have done really well at Lowell, Lowell Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Hunter, those schools, you know, cause I have like, I have first generation fucking competitive brain where I'm just like, <laughs> fuck you, you know, <laughs> but I don't know. Is my kid going to really have that being raised by like, you know, uh, in a different type of environment i have no idea i It'd thought it's probably no it's probably yeah. better you know that's like it's like so much healthier it's just gonna be a new want... crop of second gen kids from some other country yeah, like constantly <laughs> exactly so, yeah Stuyvesan someone will always someone be 100 second gen or 1.5 it'll be 100 percent something <laughs> yeah. you know but it, it might not be 100 percent asian and then like maybe all the asian parents will send their kids to like dalton or something whatever like the that, next right? version of the heart seller act is in that time <laughs> it's gonna be like this brought in a wave of people from like papua and they're all at Stuyvesant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can't wait to for that i'm gonna get you know that way i could get mad without feeling conflicted about it. Like, get all those pop ones out you know? <laughs> fuck that oh school God. uh make it available for my kid you know who's <laughs> oh and i'm just like all right so what we have to do is we have to pretend that we're really concerned about you know like black families and then we can oh, you know and then and that way it'll open it up for for us you know and like my kid's essay about going to Peru with a New York Times reporter oh, no. that I paid fifty five hundred dollars for will help. You know that'll really help her get into that school. Yeah, that's the thinking. Anyway, to end on that toxic note, thank you for listening to our show. Um, yeah, if you want to contribute to the show, Patreon's a great way to do it. TTSG, or I'm sorry, Patreon.com/slash/TTSG. Still have our Substack where you can find all of our uh, our posts. It's uh, substack.com slash ttsgpod i think right you or can goodbye. email us yeah. just, just oh, goodbye.substack.com right goodbye.substack.com um that is probably the best way to get everything that we do if you're not on the patreon and if you want to email us it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or you can reach us on twitter at ttsgpod all those things, so I don't know. Things. We check we check all of it, so um, just send it to us. And thank you for everyone who has contributed so far. Again, uh, I don't know. I don't. I feel sometimes like I'm saying thank you too much, but it is out of a genuine place of gratitude. Uh, you know, you've sort of energized us. Keep doing the show, and uh, yeah. Till next week. <laughs>